Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Thanks, you guys, for leading us. That was a special time of worship. And uh, some Sundays, you know, there's just some extra special Sundays, I think, where God really, His presence is, is very evident. And uh, this was one of those today. Well, hey, I know that by looking at me, you might think I have a lot of street smarts if you drop me right in an inner city. But I don't have as much as you might think. But... I have survived year after year of doing missions trips into places that a guy like me probably has no right of walking into and uh, made it through some pretty tough spots. One of those spots was San Francisco in 2012 with a group of students in the Tenderloin District. Uh, San Francisco is divided up into all kinds of these one square mile districts and the Tenderloin is the most notorious district. It's about a million people in a one square mile area with all kinds of problems that are, are what, when you think of San Francisco, Tenderloin, all right? The Tenderloin has all kinds of those issues, drug abuse, uh, poverty, the homelessness. I mean, it, it, you've been reading some of the articles about cleaning the sidewalks there and the struggles with that. I mean, it is, it is a mess down in the Tenderloin. And we went right into the heart of the Tenderloin, working with a ministry that was doing great ministry down in that area. Now, Here's what was going on is that the, the group was together and we were told there were certain streets that were okay for us to walk on, other ones that were not okay for us to go down. The rule was students always needed to have at least one leader along with them. They couldn't go outside alone and for good reason. And so we would go out there and occasionally be doing ministry and we'd have to go from location to location. One day I was out on a street that we were told would be fine with about uh, three or four students with me. And we were going to walk from our location to the other one. As we went down the street, what we didn't know is that that night a gang had taken the turf of that street and it had changed hands and neither did the leaders of the ministry know that that had happened. And so we were walking down the street and we're about partway through the block when all of a sudden I realized, whoa, <laughs> we're not in a good spot. And there were a group of guys that looked... Uh, uh, like they could break me like a twig ahead. And then I had these students behind me and I thought, well, the Lord is with us where you need to get there. Well, let's see what happens. So we walked and we walked right through this group of students and I could see where we needed to get to the next stoplight we had to get up to. And as I was going through this group of guys, I caught the eye of one of them and he just looked at me and he goes, what you looking at? Nothing. I didn't say anything. I just kept walking, looked down, looked straight ahead, and I kept moving. And the kids had figured out, you don't look people in the eye in that setting, and you just go. Where is our life focus? Paul's going to help us today in this passage in First Thessalonians to figure out what we're looking at, what we're focused on, what we're headed towards when we consider our lives. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn to First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're picking up in the middle of a series here in First Thessalonians, the middle of a letter written to a church by the Apostle Paul, a church that he had planted that he loved dearly after only spending about a month of time with them. A lot of these people had come to faith under his ministry and he'd seen God do powerful things there and he's writing this letter back to them, almost like a parent writing a letter back to his children. And we're going to walk through this short section here in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 17. 
And in this, we're going to discover a couple of things about what Paul does to help us keep our focus in the right spots. I'm going to read it, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to really just get used to this. I'm just going to stop about every verse or two verses as we go through here. I'm going to say a few things. So verse 17 of chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Paul's writing this letter back to them like a parent who had to be pulled away from his children. If you see a parent that has to leave their children, even when I'm excited to have a little bit of a break, it's still hard if I know that there's going to be an extended period of time where I'm going to be away from my kids. That's the kind of heart that Paul is expressing here, and time has only made Paul's affection grow, grow more and more for the Thessalonians as he looks at them. It's possible, it hints here, that maybe some of the people thought, well, Paul, you came and you did ministry here and you've gone away. Are you ever going to come back? And they might have accused him, maybe it was verbal, maybe not, we don't know, of his coming and doing ministry and having no intention of coming back. And Paul wants them to know how much he loves them and how much he's still for them and wants to see their faith be strong in the midst of life and in the midst of their faith. And throughout this passage, we see that expression over and over again. Maybe you've been in a spot where you had to say goodbye to somebody that you dearly loved. You would want them to know you're coming back, and that's what Paul expresses here, his desire to come back to them. Verse 18, we pick up there. It's in the middle of the sentence, but he's expressed that desire, and it says, because we wanted to come to you. And I, Paul, again and again wanted, but... Satan hindered it. How did Satan hinder Paul being able to get back there? We don't exactly know, but perhaps it had to do with this. If you remember from the weeks back, when Paul came into the city of Thessalonica, in this city, he came in and he was, he was one that just, in, in many people's minds, stirred up trouble. Because he was bringing a whole new thing, a new faith, a new way of thinking about things when he began to speak the name of Jesus Christ. For some, they didn't like this. The Jewish establishment saw it as a threat to the uh, continuation of, of, of the Jewish faith rather than the fulfillment of their faith being found in Jesus. So that may be one group. That's one group that was upset with him. The other group was the Greek, the Greek uh, leaders of the city. Those people looked at him as a political threat. And so if he's going to come in, and those were the ones who ran him out of Thessalonica. Months beforehand, he'd run him out of there, and, and now Paul is looking back, and he maybe doesn't see his, the ability for him to come back into that city. It's possible that Paul had this illness that he talks about in Galatians and 2 Corinthians, this illness of whatever he was facing, and that was preventing him, but whatever it is, he says it's Satan that is preventing it. You notice Paul didn't attribute all change in plans, though, to Satan throughout his life. Have you ever come across a decision and you're going on what we might call the open door principle? If the door is open, it's definitely God's will. If it's closed, it's not God's will. Here we come across a spot where we see Paul wasn't able to go somewhere, but he's persistent in pressing into it. You see, sometimes God does block something like Acts 16. God blocked Paul's movement there. So if you're in the middle of a spot and you think what you're about to do is God's will, what you're making a decision on is, must be God's will, and you're in a dilemma. So is God trying to tell me go a different route or is Satan stopping me here? 
And should I just be persistent and wait until I see God make a, have a breakthrough in this? What do I do in the middle of that? James 4, if you remember, we, we looked at this several months back, said today or tomorrow, it's a group of people making this declaration. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and make a profit. They're making their plans. Here's what we're going to do. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, we will live and do this or that. In other words, take our plans, we make those plans, we hold them loosely, and then when it seems that God might be blocking those plans, what do we do? We begin to consult God. God, what are you doing in this? We might consult the scripture. This would be the number one place we need to go. God, is what I'm about to do in your will? Is it what you want? And you would find a lot of that in scripture. You might need an outside voice who would point you back to scripture and help you understand the word and give you some consult on that issue. You need to be praying in the middle of that. God, what are you trying to show me in the middle of this? Is this you? Is Satan blocking me? What's going on? But we have to consult God in the middle of it. And here we see Paul being blocked. He's going to be persistent in his desire to get back to them. But yet at the same time, he says it's Satan who's blocking him. Verse 19, let's keep moving in 1 Thessalonians, says this, For what is our, our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy, Paul's future glory, what he's pointing them towards or pointing his life and reminding himself of is it's the people that matter in his life. When he looks back upon his life, it's going to be the people who matter. He's looking at the future glory of what God will do. And the, the proclamation he's making here is not about himself. Look what I've done. But he's saying, look what God has done through me in your lives. And he expresses that heart and that desire. Moving into chapter 3, Paul keeps going on and he says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. So Paul has left Thessalonica, he's gone to another city, and now he's in Athens and in this where he's writing back to them. And he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So Paul's looking back from the city where he now is working, where he's min doing ministry, writing this letter to them. And he says, I've sent my brother Timothy, a guy who's done ministry alongside of Paul, like Paul's son almost. He's mentored him in ministry. He's, he's dear to Paul. And he sends him back to them. It's like sending his best man to them. Here's the best guy I could send to you to get a report of how you're doing because he wants to know that their faith is okay in the middle of the afflictions that they're facing. Do you remember when we started this series, we talked about some of those afflictions that the Thessalonians were facing, some of the struggles. Because of their faith, they were all of a sudden in a battle where they were up against all kinds of persecution. And so they were being pressed out of places. They lost relationships. They were being arrested. All kinds of trouble had brought, been brought into their life because of it. As an American, I have struggled before with whether or not it's okay for me to say there's persecution in my life for different things. And I might look around and compare myself to uh, somebody who is being persecuted in a very physical way, a torturous way that's awful, and I can see that. Persecution in general, though, 
has this, or affliction, we might say, in general has this at the heart of it. It's a people saying, stop being like that and just be like us. Just quit and come believe what we believe. That's what's at the heart of persecution and the pressure. And it looks different in different places and in different cultures. But yet, nonetheless, it is, as you read the Bible, it is persecution. One Middle Eastern underground house church leader said in a church, uh, sorry, in a Christianity Today article this. This man's been through it. He's been through the ringer in, when it comes to physical persecution. He said persecution is easier to understand when it's physical, torture and death and imprisonment. And he said this, American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution, he said. We do face persecution as American Christians. Not all the things that we call persecution are persecution because there are times when we've climbed the wrong hill. But yet, many times when we're marginalized, if we're passed over for jobs, when we're mocked or we're treated unjustly, where we're arrested or we're kicked off campuses or whatever it might be, for righteous living or sharing our faith, that's persecution. It's an affliction that Paul is writing about. But has anybody told you that the Christian life actually brings about more suffering and persecution? I hope they have. Because becoming a follower of Jesus is not about receiving fully the blessing now, but we receive some of the struggle of this now. We absorb the sufferings of Christ. We have a fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Jesus said to us in John 15, 20, Remember the word I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.13 said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul talks to a people who are being persecuted in this section. Keep going in verse, uh, sorry, in, in verse 4, and we're going to look towards 4 and 5. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. That's Timothy going back. He's trying to find out about their faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He tributes Satan again as the tempter here. And what would he tempt them to do? essentially to fall into sin and become ineffective Christians. And in doing so, it would mean Paul's work would be in vain, that he had invested his life, he'd poured himself into them, even though it is actually God's work, and Paul, I think, would acknowledge that. But yet his investment in their lives would have been in vain. Satan is always after us, wanting to see us tempted and squirm his way into our lives where he could get a foothold and make us weak and ineffective. And so what does this passage teach us? Let me juxtapose two thoughts about this. One of them is this. Being fixated on short-term circumstances can have disastrous long-term repercussions in our life. 
Circumstances, short-term circumstances, oftentimes act like a vacuum to get our attention into that one spot. And typically it's down. It's at the here and now. Just look at this. So let's review. What was Paul's short-term circumstance in this passage? It is this. Paul's Paul's short-term circumstance was the possibility of discouragement because he couldn't get back to them. He longed to get back to them. And possibly even that people were accusing him of abandoning them. And he was concerned about their walk with God that it may have been threatened and that under this pressure that they were under that they could have been crumbling in that. And so Paul's short-term circumstance is the desire for it to get back. For the Thessalonians, think about them. Here a man had, a group of men had walked into their city and begins to proclaim the name of Jesus. And they're coming from a background where they've either been a devout Jew or a worldly Greek and trying to make their way through the world. But the message of Christ, the gospel was proclaimed to them. They sensed God's tugging on their heart and they responded to the gospel. And they do, but with it, it brings nothing but trouble into their lives. Talk about a discouraging circumstance. And so when they respond, they're abandoned and they're marginalized and they're arrested and they find out that Christianity is quite tough and then the person who came to share that news with them gets run out of town and they don't know if he's going to come back. We too face discouragement at times for our faith. The possibility in our short-term circumstances where we realize it's a lot harder to be a Christian than we ever thought it would be. There's a difference between the trials that come in life because we became a follower of Jesus and the trials of life that come because we just go through life. Everybody faces some trials. Paul is specifically pointing us to the trials that come because of our faith, but the principles are still the same of what he does in this book of 1 Thessalonians. But would you be discouraged if you were a Thessalonian? If you were sitting in that spot, would you be a discouraged believer? Today, are you a discouraged believer because your faith has brought more difficulty than it did ease of life? Maybe you're a kid who's tried to share your faith with a friend and you found out that friend would make fun of you for it. Maybe you're a teenager who is trying to live for Christ and you've avoided the party scene and in the middle of that, you've lost friends because of it. Maybe you're a young adult who is, is in college and you're, you wrote a paper and in it you took a stand on something and in the midst of that you got on the bad side of that professor and you've never been able to recover in that class since. You're trying to get your career established and you took a moral stand on an issue where there was an ethical decision that you were up against and in the middle of it you got passed over for a promotion Maybe you're a parent, you're trying to have, provide a home for your children where they'll grow in the Lord, but it just seems like nothing's happening, that God's just blocking that in your children's life. And it'd be easier just to throw up your hands and just let go, but by, by continuing to try to nurture your kids spiritually, it's bringing more trouble on your life. Maybe you're an employee who has refused to work on a Sunday and you lost your job because of it. Or a senior who tried reaching out to neighbors and they basically said, you're irrelevant and I don't want to hear what you have to say. You have family that's turned on you because of your faith somewhere along the way. We face these things today, this kind of difficulty and struggle, and it is persecution. 
It is an affliction. It's a different kind. But affliction or difficulty or struggle because of our faith can oftentimes lead to a discouragement. And when we become discouraged, we're apt to respond unwisely to situations and people. We can withdraw, we complain, we can blame, we can draw negative conclusions about people, or we can just say, I quit. I'm just going to give up in my faith. Like the Israelites who were in the desert, God had told them to go conquer this new land and he would give it to them. And when the spies were sent out, they went out and they looked and they came back with this report that there were giants in the land and they all felt fear. And it says that when they sensed this fear, when this, when this uh, um, discouragement came upon them, they lifted up their voice and they cried and the people wept all night. And their discouragement came from comparing a difficult situation to their resources instead of God's resources. And before you know it, they had grumbled, they lost faith, and they failed to take the land because of their lack of obedience, and they lost the blessing that God would give them if they'd simply obeyed. You see, affliction leads to discouragement, which leads to temptation, which leads to sin. Have you seen that pattern in your life? That's Satan's will, to take you right out at the legs, to slither into a believer's heart and get a foothold. Satan's always looking for ways to do this. The temptation was there for the Thessalonians, it's there for us. It's not saying that when you have a short-term circumstance that is difficult that you don't pay any attention to it. If your house is burning down, do you need to take care of it? If you get a cut on your hand, do you need to take care of that cut and, and nurture that back? Yes, but you know that in the long term, in the long run, as it heals, it'll be okay and you'll get through that. But there's some initial pain, there's some attention that you need to give to it, but you keep that in perspective. What happens to a believer when we have the temptation to fall into sin and say we do fall into sin? The believer becomes weak and ineffective. We lose our passion for Christ. We lose our effectiveness in the kingdom for God. We're no longer even a threat to Satan. I have some friends who um, a year ago left behind their life in America for uh, the mission field in Uganda. Jared had a lucrative job in North Dakota in the oil field, in the oil business. Great job. was good for his family. It was a good spot of life, but all the while they were feeling a tug in their hearts to go be used by God in the mission field. And so they looked at their life and they were trying to figure out what to do. Their church had a connection to Musana Camps that's up on the northern side of Lake Victoria in Uganda. And a year ago, they left behind that life in order to pursue a life in Uganda. Last Sunday, they had been gone for two weeks and were coming back to their house after being gone for two weeks, and their house had been closed up, and they came back in. They got a good rest on Sunday night, and Monday morning, Jared got up early, and we went, he went off to the, the uh, offices of the camp in order to do his work there, and his family slept in a little bit that morning because they had just gotten back from that trip. As his wife had gotten up in the morning, about an hour later, he gets this frantic phone call from his wife Jared, you've got to come back to the house. There's a problem here. And she begins to tell the story as he gets back over there of what had happened. 
uh, they're in their home. They have a patio, closed-in patio, that's just off of their living area. And there's a screen door and some, some uh, French doors that close there. She had gone out into the patio. And as she was strep- stepping through the, the uh, threshold of the, into the patio, she just kind of noticed something was underneath her as she was stepping through. And she did one of these. It was kind of like, like that. You know, you've done that. And she looks back. And there's a snake that was about 18 inches long underneath her feet. If you're squeamish, don't look right now. Okay, this is going to give you nightmares. I can't stand snakes. They, they freak me out. And so this snake, when uh, it slithered away and it got between in the screen door and the French doors and they closed it. And I think you can see a picture here of the snake looking at them in the house. Jared came over and he got a shovel and a stick and he, he t- made short work of that snake. But as they did some research on it, and they figured out what it was. It was a Gabon viper, which is one of the most poisonous snakes. When it bites you, it injects just a lethal venom. A guy in first service said it's called, who grew up as an MK in Africa, said it's called the two-step snake. You take two steps and you're down. And when it clamps on, it, it doesn't let go. Stacy had stepped right over this snake. And Jared came, he, he took care of it. But he, in his blog this week, said something that's very important and relevant to what we're talking about. He was describing, and he said, Genesis 4, 7 speaks to our sin in similar ways. God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desires for him, but he must master it. And he goes on and he shared a little bit about this. And he said, sin is lurking. It's calling to us from everywhere. We grow accustomed to it and we get lethargic. And little by little, through ignorance, we allow the sin to get closer and closer. And eventually that sin is just a half a step away and a mistake could spell disaster. When this happened, Stacy obviously went through the rest of the house, checked everything to make sure there was not another snake in the house. Thankfully there wasn't. But she acted in self-defense of her own life, of the family's life. She was going to make sure that the house was good and Jared was with her through that. She wouldn't sit idly by. Jared said, do we do this with sin? Are we repulsed by it? When we see it, do we respond and call for help and seek to destroy it? Do we look for any sign of it and defend our families from it? Do we protect our house, our children, and our spouses from it? Think of how foolish it would have been for my wife to have seen the snake in the doorway and have turned her head to continue doing what she was doing. What if she never called me and never even called attention to this monster at the door? What if she said to herself, well, we live in an area that has snakes, and it's just how it is, another day in Africa. Peter says, yeah, it's just like another day in Africa. <laughs> but Peter, you would kill that snake, wouldn't you? Yeah, okay. It would be insane to leave that there in your home. And he, Jared said, we tend to, like, like sin, we tend to entertain it and not take care of it. Temptation lurks at the door when we're discouraged. When we find out that Christianity is harder than we ever knew it would be. Beware of your surroundings and your circumstances and what's happening. And this passage poses an interesting question though. Why doesn't God just stop Satan in the world? Why doesn't God just today stop Satan? He could just crush him, right? He will. We know scripture says he will. But if he's all powerful, why doesn't he do it now? 
John Piper suggested, as he, as he looked at this question, suggested something, and it's this. The key is that God aims to defeat Satan in a way that glorifies not only his power, but also the superior beauty and worth and desirability of his son over Satan. You see, God could just come in and he could just crush Satan today. And we would say, praise you, Lord, for your power. You're amazing. But John Piper is suggesting that something greater is happening in this story. It's more costly. It's more difficult in one way. And it's this, is that God's beauty is better seen with the way it is. That the first blow to Satan was Christ's death, opening the door that we might be saved. But he says this, is that when a a person converts to Christ, when they place their trust in Christ, we're choosing the beauty of Christ over the ugliness of Satan. And in that, it's a more crushing blow than if he just took him out right now. As people are redeemed, as we see the beauty of Christ, that that's a better direction. I thought that was a helpful way of looking at that and thinking about that. We don't focus on our short-term circumstances, so what do we focus on? What are we to focus on? What are you looking at in your life right now? A second principle is unlike the first one, but being fixated on long-term promises of Christ can result in great long-term blessings in our life. If you look closely at what Paul does, he reveals a secret in this passage to his long-term tenacious, gritty faith that he has. Verse 19, you see it right there. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. At first glance, you might think, oh, he's putting his hope in people, right? If the people respond, if the people that are in this church, if they would simply follow the Lord, then they will be his hope and joy and crown, and it will all be good. But he gives something, an indication, if you look a little bit layered, a layer deeper, really he's giving an indication of where he looks in his life. And it's at the end. He doesn't just look at the short-term spot where his hope might be placed in people, but he looks in the long-term spot of the end, the crown that is to come, which is also trusting that Jesus will do his work in those people. But yet he's focused on the end. This past spring, I've been spending a lot of time at track meets because one of my kids is in track right now. And a couple of weeks ago, I watched this funny thing get played out. It's middle school track, so these things happen at, at these meets. And this kid's run a pretty long race, and there's a guy that's probably 15 feet, 20 feet behind him as they come along. And if you've been at Stoker Stadium, you know that the stands where, the, where everybody sits is along the finish line, and you kind of hit the finish line off to the right if you're looking from the stands. And this kid comes along, and he starts hearing everybody cheering for him as he comes along the stands. And as he's jogging along, he looks up at the stands, but he slows down, and he doesn't know it. And he thinks, I mean, he's all jazzed because everybody's cheering, and he's probably finding his parents, and, and he's excited. But what he doesn't know is this kid's starting to catch him. He starts looking over his shoulder, and every time he looks to the side, what does he do? He slows down. If only somebody could have told him, just look to the finish line. Keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. You will be fine. The author of Hebrews told us, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you look at Jesus in your life, instead of at the short-term circumstance, what will you find? You will find the soul-satisfying, beautiful majesty of Christ who offers for you everything you need for today and tomorrow and next year and the year after that. You will find rescue in the future and restoration of God that will come in your life as God restores you. You will find rest for your weary soul. Paul reminded us in 2 Corinthians, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The struggle is so temporary. It's so short in the scope of eternity. And we have to say this often in church. Do you realize that? That the short struggle in following Christ, it'll come and go and you'll look back one day in eternity and you'll be shocked Why didn't I realize? It's just going to be temporary. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Praise him in the middle of whatever you possibly would go through. Lest you fall into temptation. Lest you let discouragement just begin to take over your life and your heart and eat you alive. Because the believers who place their focus on Christ, meaning his blessings and his promises and his his goodness to us and his reward and his future, which opens the way for our future, they will endure to the end and discover great blessing. So let me ask you a really serious question. Where are your life's eyes right now? Are they focused at yourself or are they at Christ? Instead of singing a closing song, I'm going to play a video for you of something that neither Matt or I can do. Spoken word. It's kind of like poetry with music and it's put together in a very artistic way. It's not our typical culture, but I think you'll you'll, you'll appreciate the expression of it. And let this be a praise that lifts your eyes, a decision to praise Him, no matter what your circumstances or no matter what it's costing you to follow Jesus right now. Let's watch this video. Praise Him. Praise Him for the cosmos and the picture that it paints of an artist so brilliant he can scarcely be defined. Praise Him. For the first time that you paused to notice the open sky and wondered what kind of imagination could inspire such beautiful things from scratch. Praise him for the scratch, for dust held in the hands of a master craftsman, unafraid to share his likeness with those he knew would break his heart and test his patience and try his love. Praise him 
for the borrowed breath that you breathe and faculties that function so as to remind you that you are not your own for a love that finds its way to you in every season, letting you know that you are not alone. Praise him remembering never to forget all of his benefits too numerous to be calculated too heavy to be weighed on scales too astronomical to be quantified praise him for the miracles that your eyes have seen that you are too hard-hearted to believe too nearsighted to perceive and too self-sufficient to receive and still somehow he met all of your needs praise him for broken hearts and bruised knees, for mountains brought low and valleys raised for joy, given in the deep of night. Praise him for the night and weeping that always expires and lasts only as long as he allows. Come on, praise him for all that he allows, all that he permits, all that he prevents and all that he allows. Praise him for blessings often overlooked because they're disguised. Praise him for Jesus who brought the radiance of the sun in the tyranny of an unrelenting dark night. And before you were even awake to the world, you gloried in his light, warmed by the generosity of his love, carried from death to life on the wings of faith. Remember your name uttered in a prayer and your heart awakened to your need for a savior. Remember your savior who showed up at just the right time to show humanity that God would never turn his back on the world that he made. Praise him for the way that he came. Matchless power contained in the frame of a child born in a city as obscure as they come. The giver of life filling up his very own lungs with the same breath that we breathe to show that he is not ashamed of us. He is well acquainted with us. He is committed no matter what the cost to saving us. Praise him for saving us and the cross that provided the means, the door through which we enter, the shade under which we rest, his righteousness and not our own, his grace and his grace alone, calling us out and bringing us in, conquering death and absolving our sin. Let me say it again. Praise him in the season that you're in, for it bears the mark of his hold on you. And when life gets a hold of you, tempting you to forget. Lift your eyes, lift your heart, lift your hands, and praise him. So what you looking at, right? Well, I guess now you can see why I showed a video instead of trying to do it myself. (laughs) Would you stand for our benediction? Revelation 7:12 says this. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you'd like prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. And as you go out from here, meet somebody you haven't met before. We'll see you later.